Well, I must say thank you very much indeed. I, first of all, I'm completely uh, bowled over by this. Uh, I was not, no judgment on any of my organizers, but I was not prepared in my mind in any way for um, this group of people. I, I said to my wife, I go home, uh, let's go back to the hotel, I can put on um, more sensible clothes, but now I, I, just, I feel like I do a disservice to you by, by not being clothed and in my right mind. Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want you to assume that, or even to assume that, you know, I think this is kind of hip or something. I'm not, I'm a long, I'm a long road removed from uh, hip at, at any place. And uh, so, yeah, I, and so I walk in, I go, oh, this is a deal here. This is, uh, this is not, this, I thought it was like half a dozen pastors getting together for a sandwich and then we could, you know, talk because, uh, you know, I, I discovered what I think is uh, is true for all of us that, you know, when you go places, you, you, you end up being the beneficiary of the invitation more than you're able to benefit the people to whom you go. I mean, it, it just just the encouragement of, of last night and then uh, being part of things this morning um, just reinforces that for me. And I'm always glad to be in the company of, of fellow foot soldiers. I, I, my calling in life is to pastoral ministry, and um, I've been trying uh, at it for a while now, and uh, people ask me, why, why haven't you quit? And I said, well, I quit every Sunday evening, actually. I, I, I go home, I tell my wife, tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to a, a number of places. I'm going to Home Depot. I'm going, I'm going to see if I can get a proper job, because, because this, this job... This job is too hard. This is, this is a privilege, but it's, it's difficult. And so, you know, we, we're glad to be in each other's company because we can, we can talk to one another in a way that uh, we, I think we understand each other. Even, we don't want to be selective in that, but uh, unless someone has walked this road and lived this uh, journey, then they've got really no idea about what is involved in, in pastoral ministry at all, if we're going to take it seriously. With all that as just a rambling introduction, I, I think I just want to say a couple of things. One is that um, part of the challenge that I feel myself facing now in seeking to um, edify uh, the congregation, to build them up in, the, in their faith and so on, is to recognize in doing so that uh, along with them, we are now having to discover what it is like to live as a Christian in a society that does not like what Christians believe. I mean, I've been coming to America since 1972. In 72, I was at Explo 72 with Campus Crusade. There were 100,000 people in the Cotton Bowl there. Um, today is a very, very different day, uh, half a century on. Uh, the idea that uh, pluralism would work for us, whereby, you know, everybody, it's a liberal democracy, everybody can have their own little booth, and since they have a booth, then we can have a booth, and then we'll try and do a good job in our booth. It hasn't worked, because now they've decided that the only booth that is unacceptable in a pluralistic environment is the Christian booth. 
is the person who's prepared to actually say there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved. That voice has to be silenced. And it is seeking to do so for our university students, for our college students. It's the same just in the casual intercourse of life uh, for men and women realizing. And so for us as pastors, I think, and uh, at least for myself, I'm trying to figure out how to do a better job of that. And to make sure that in, in the way in which we say what we say, because in doing what we do, uh, there are a number of things, right? Uh, there's, uh, there's volume when we speak, um, loud, quiet. Uh, there's pace, fast, slow. Uh, there's pitch, high, low. And we have to do all of that and not annoy the dickens out of people. But the underlying thing in it all is tone. Tone. And I have to ask my wife all the time, help me with my tone. Because my father used to say to me, son, your problem is not with the things you say. Your problem is the way that you say them. And you're going to have to learn to say them in a better way, in a different way, in an imaginative way, a creative way, and in a nice way. And we need people in our lives that are able to tell us, hey, you're getting that tone going again. And what happens is then we project something to the congregation. The congregation will eventually, if you're there for long enough and they've had to listen to you for long enough, they're going to pick up on that. And then that's going to be the sort of um, personae that is represented out of our congregation. And so I'm saying to myself, well, I need to get better at this and I need to understand how to be far more uh, uh, skillful in doing what needs to be done without giving up anything by way of Christian conviction, but yet at the same time being able to communicate it in a way that starts where people are. I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating, isn't it, that the Paul who wrote the second half of Romans 1, which is, you know, behind a facade of wisdom that became fools who exchanged the glory of an art of God for things that creep and call and fly. God gave them up. Idolatry led to impurity. Impurity led to homosexuality. Homosexuality and the total destruction of the family. He's absolutely unequivocal in that. He wrote that under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Okay. He gets an invitation in Athens to come to a group of uh, intellectuals and talk to them uh, about uh, what it is that he believes. Remember, they said, let's see what this babbler has to say. Um, it was like the word there is for a bird that picks up little bits of stuff here and little bits of stuff there. And uh, they said, he's just been picking stuff up all over the place. We'll see what he has to say. Now, he, he wrote that. He's addressing the group in Athens. But where does he start? Well, he says, I can see that you're a very religious group of people. And uh, in fact, I've been going around here the last day or so, and, and you've got all kinds of uh, um, effigies and idols and monuments and everything else. And I'm fascinated to see that you've actually got one that is dedicated to the unknown God. Now, that's what I'd like to talk to you about today. I'd like to explain to you concerning that. Well, it's very disarming, isn't it? And then where does he start? He starts with the doctrine of creation. The God 
who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples built by human hands, nor is he in need of any one of us. And then he quotes the poets. He's in touch with the community. He's done his homework. He's engaging them. He's not just laying something down uh, on them. And uh, the, the skill that's involved in that under the direction of the Holy Spirit is a skill that many of us, I think, need to work much harder on. It, it means that we need to be reading far more than simply our theological textbooks. It means that we have to be engaging in a way that understands the people with whom we live and the ideas that fill their hearts and minds. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a hero of mine and of many of us, uh, was uh, alerted to the fact that one of his grandchildren, according to his mom, that's uh, MLJ's daughter, one of his grandchildren was, quote, off the rails. And he was uh, expounding various notions and ideas and so on. And uh, the boy's mother was really annoyed and concerned. And so she said to her dad, to Lloyd-Jones, she said, you know, you're going to you're gonna have to help me fix this boy. And uh, so Lloyd-Jones says, well, what is it that he's on about? And she said, well, he's been reading this particular book. Oh, he said, that's very interesting. Well, then, unbeknown to his daughter or to his grandson, he went and bought the book. And he read the book to find out what it was that the boy was uh, filling his head with. And then, on a, uh, a kind of unplanned train journey um, in England, sitting with his grandson, he just engaged him in conversation. So, what have you been thinking about lately? What are the ideas that are moving you and stirring you and so on? And uh, under God, uh, that kind of engagement brought about a transformation. In fact, that grandson uh, who lives in Middleburg, Virginia, is the one who started the Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, Recording Trust to make the sermons of his grandpa available throughout the world. A grandpa who was able to do what grandpas do, which is often what moms can't do. And uh, now I should have a talk about being a grandparent and what we should do with that, but that, that, wasn't, that, wasn't, in, that wasn't in my mind at all. So that's, that's, that's the one thing I've been thinking about. And the other thing, I'm always, uh, people ask me, I hate it when they ask me, they say, so what has God been teaching you today? I, I'm like, I don't know, teaching me to, 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 yeah, whatever, I always tell him, well, whatever I was reading in my Bible, I guess that's what he's teaching me. And so, what, what we have been, we're, we're down to the final two verses, we're on the positive side now, but I've been wearying my congregation with uh, expositions of the letter to Jude. And, uh, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and our Lord Jesus Christ. The greater challenge to the church is not the challenge of the push from an alien world. The greater challenge to the church is the collapse from inside. 
And our brother alerted us to it in the passing comment, didn't he? There's a, there's a, there's a classic last lack of conviction about the authority, the sufficiency, the inerrancy of Scripture. And so we have to encourage one another in this respect. Uh, some who've grown doubtful about the Bible or who have become um, just seduced by high-sounding ideas and notions which um, usually leave you bereft of anything that is substantial. And again, this is where we need one another. You know, we are all the beneficiaries. I am the product of people who still to this day are my big brothers, my big sisters in the gospel. My parents are gone, but I have just adopted people along the way to help me to be able to go to them and say, how do I do this? Or how do I stop doing this? Or whatever it might be. How do I make sure that I am earnestly contending for the faith once delivered to the saints? How do I make sure that, as Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who is in you. So on the outside, engaging um, the, the community in a way that, um, that our our, our tone and the tenor of our engagement is not detrimental to the good news story that we have to convey. And then in saying to one another in the church, particularly as brethren in the gospel, uh, you know, you've got to make sure, we have to make sure that you don't give up on this. Because if you think about all the issues that are represented in this political framework, brothers, right, this is actually about the Bible. It's all about the Bible. The, the, the collapse of the church in Scotland in relationship to the issues of human sexuality, that collapse happened 100 years ago. It happened 100 years ago. The symptoms of it have been represented in the last 40, but the collapse was in the new college of Edinburgh University. It was in the theological departments of Aberdeen. It was in those who began to doubt the gospel entirely and became too intelligent for their own good, and thus then produced a whole set of individuals who thought it would be a wonderful thing to go out and appeal to the community in such a way that if they could only get rid of all the difficult parts in the Bible, then people would just be coming out of the woodwork. They say, this is fantastic. There's no resurrection. There's no virgin birth. There's no, uh, uh, to, 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 there's no divinity and humanity. He, he got rid of all of that. It's great. Well, that's not what happened, is it? No, because liberal Christianity is a shadow of itself. It's, it, it deserves to be what it is. In fact, transitional Christianity is dying as well. The only <laughs> Christianity that is doing anything in the, in the country at the moment is new people coming to discover who Jesus is because their friends are telling them about them and introducing them to the gospel. And so what we want to make sure is that uh, we understand... Uh, why C.T. Studd, who was a very wealthy man and a captain of England's cricket team and uh, many other things besides, uh, who, uh, you know, came to, the, came to the conclusion, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I could ever make for him could ever be too great. That's sort of um, biblical logic. 
And, and so on the strength of that, he gives, he gives up his fortune and he, and he heads out into the far reaches of the universe with this story about a risen Jesus. His wife finds out about it because he kept back 100,000 pounds for his wife, which in today's money would just be astronomical. And she said, because he had told her, he said, you know, I need you to love Jesus more than you love me, he told his wife. And he said, in fact, I'm going to give you a little poem that you can say when you have your quiet time. It goes like this. He, want, he wanted her to say, Dear Lord Jesus, you are to me dearer than Charlie ever could be. That's what she's supposed to say, which she did. But then she found out that he had kept back all that money for her. And so she said to him, hey, do you think that Jesus can only take care of you and he can't take care of me? That's not what you told me. And so she says, Charlie, give the rest of it away. And he gave it to General Booth of the Salvation Army. And that man, C.T. Studd, was the fellow who was prepared to say, some want to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And the issue that is here in Jude and the challenge that is there in Timothy is a challenge that we understand and that we must take up. And time is going through our fingers and we only have so many opportunities uh, that are left to us. And I just tell you, what my most recent, uh, I, I, what I want to have, I'm going to have somebody put this on my golf balls because this is one of the best ways that I can evangelize because I lose them all over the place. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, if only I could keep them in the fairway. But, so I want, so I said to somebody the other day, I just want you to put on the golf ball 711718. 71 one seven one eight and the person said why i said because that is psalm 71 verse 17 verse 18 which reads "O god from my youth you have taught me as brought up in a christian home when a church every time the doors opened survived <laughs> survived gloriously survived i just feel so sorry for parents who want their children to be their friends rather than to be their children. First of all, they have to be your children before they can ever become your friends. But anyway, um, oh God, from my youth you've taught me and I will proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. That is our story, and we're sticking to it. We, we're, we're, we don't have a Republican manifesto. We don't have a Democrat manifesto. We have a Christian manifesto. I thought that was what you were saying, brother, that Jesus is the king. And what we've got now, of course, if you pay attention, I'm starting another talk now, but we have to, we, there, you, you see what's happened in evangelicalism? We got red evangelicalism and blue evangelicalism. 
The people who've gone on the red evangelicalism are always talking about abortion and how sex is entirely within the framework of monogamous heterosexual relationships, which we should be. The people who are on the blue side are always talking about poverty, about justice, and about racial prejudice, which they should be. But in actual fact, the gospel is talking about all those things. And if you find yourself only on one side of that divide, you just lost a significant number of your friends, neighbors, and perhaps your congregation. So that's why we have to say to each other, no matter what we believe about all these things, and I'm a political animal, I'm on the site, I, I understand the, the, the t-shirt that said, Lord, if you're not coming back soon, can you please send Ronald Reagan? I understand that. <laughs> I understand that. So, so I'm not disguising any of my convictions. And, but, but, we gotta, we gotta, we've got to lead with Jesus. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the story. Jesus is the answer. Hallelujah. Amen. Yeah, sorry. Thanks for your patience.